When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your weekend is not complete without the First Lady of New York Radio. It's the Joan Hamburg Show. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Who better to talk to during the holidays than my pal Kathy Lee? And Kathy Lee, in our own market for so many years, Regis and Kathy, and then on the Today Show, Hoda and Kathy, huge successes. But then one day, Kathy Lee said, I love you, but I'm out of here. And she took herself off to Nashville, where she started a whole new life. Now, a lot of people don't realize Kathy Lee is a playwright. She writes music, songs. She's really a Renaissance woman. Incredible. So, but she left us to a different a different place, a different area, very happy in Nashville. And she's seen a lot of good things in this year. Her children both got married, and many of you who were her fans sort of watched her kids grow up. And Kathy just is a marvel. She's always had incredible religious roots, way back from the time she was just a kid. And heard Billy Graham. She's always been very spiritual. She's a fascinating person. And I'm looking forward to her sharing the life and loves of Kathy Lee Gifford. And also, a wonderful actor. You're going to really enjoy it. Rob McClure. And hear his story. So, come on everyone. We need you to be with us straight ahead. The Joan Hamburg Show. And don't forget, we do this every Sunday, beginning at 2 o'clock. The First Lady of New York Radio, Joan Hamburg. Entertaining and informative. Talk Radio 77 WABC. When my old friend, Kathy Lee Gifford, announced that she was leaving New York to go to Nashville, Tennessee... I can't say we were shocked, but we were shocked because Kathy has had and continues to have a brilliant career. Wonderful kids, wonderful friends, great work. And we thought she can't leave because she was already for, what, 10, 11 years on the Today Show with Hoda, whom we love. They became great friends, and the show reflected that kind of honesty and friendship and fun. It was everything that people wanted from their pals, only they were their television pals. So, Kathy, we'll, we'll go back to that time. And by the way, Kathy has written a new book called The Jesus I Know, and she talks to so many people, and they're people you know, about their faith and about how God came into their lives, even people with terrible challenges, as you'll find out, most people have challenges. Mm -hmm. But let's go back 
to when the Today Show was booming, when uh-huh. you got that hour or two with Hoda, and everything yeah. seemed great, right? Yes. So yes. Well, it, oh, well, first of all, it's great to talk to you, Joan. I adore you, and I'm and I'm happy to be back with your your listeners who've been such faithful friends to me through all the years. Yes, it's huge change in my life now. Um, the, the the eleven years with Hoda were amazing. You know, I never won an Emmy with. Uh, with Regis, I was nominated right, like fifty years. times, but four of them, four of them, when I joined Oda. So. <laughs> <laughs> and um, you know, you just you, you never know. But anyway, um, yes, we're still dear friends. I saw her last week when I started my book tour, and we'll be friends forever, like I was with with Regis until the Lord right. took him to that great talk show in the sky. But. Um, Yes. Uh, what happened was that, that we weren't very good at the beginning. I knew we could be, but Hoda was such a trained, excellent journalist that she had. She had. If she was going to be a talk show hostess with me, she needed to get rid of all that stuff. You know? Right. Get the get the IFB out of your ear. Throw away the cards, baby, and let life happen. Exactly. You know, Take there's nothing sip. duller, nothing duller on television than two people talking that are that have somebody else talking to them in their ear. I know. You know, it's just it's just ridiculous. So anyway, I, I know it's necessary for, for news and that sort of thing. But for a talk show, no, get rid of it. So she finally did. And then, and then the Hoda that has emerged began to just just blossom. So, yeah, I never I expected to stay a year, stayed 11. But then all of a sudden, you know, Joan, I, I started to do a movie down here. Uh, I, was, I actually wrote it for Craig Ferguson and me to do Um and he's one of my dear friends, and I wrote a, a movie about him for him called Then Came You that people can still uh, see, uh, download. And it's a lot of fun. We shot it in the highlands of, of Scotland. But while I was um, getting ready to shoot it, I was co-writing all the music for it down here in Nashville for a year with the great uh, Brett James. So I kept flying back and forth, flying back and forth. And I just thought when I'd get on the plane to go back to New York on Sunday nights, I'd go, why am I so happy here? And it dawned on me, I'm joyful down here. There is a, it's a completely different culture than what what the Northeast has become. And it's been, I've been watching it happen in the big, big cities in, in America, sadly, for the last, oh, 15 or so years, this mean-spiritedness that's emerging, this, this that callousness, this disregard for each other's humanity, this lack of, of stability, so much anger, and it's on the surface, and it doesn't take much, and the next thing you know, people are, people are dead. And I just thought, you know, the only way people talk to each other these days is screaming at each other and nothing's ever accomplished that way. So I just realized that my soul was getting sucked dry. There's a there is a culture of chaos in the Northeast. And and I'd come down here and there's a culture of kindness and my soul was just responding to it. And there's people who believe in God and are vocal about it, people who love their country and they're vocal about it. You know, two times I went through a, um, uh, a, a, an election cycle down here and people would say to me, Cass, after you vote, let's get together and have a drink and write a song. They didn't <laughs> tell me how to vote. They don't tell you how to think here. And they certainly don't cancel you if, you, if they don't agree with you on something. I mean... 
That's the antithesis of the way Jesus taught us to live our lives. Jesus was the most welcoming, radically loving human being the world has ever seen or ever will see. And this book is about that. Um, Jesus never canceled anybody. He, gave, he went out of his way to find the unloved, to find the lost to find the broken and the wounded and the hopeless. And, and, he, and he gave them life, new life. And that's what we as his believers are supposed to do too. We're not supposed to yell at people, tell them they're going to hell if they don't believe in him. We're supposed to love them in his name. So, I mean, that's the way I believe and I've tried to live my life. But this book is 25 people who see things differently than I do. And and I that's what I wanted to share because our common ground with people is is what is sacred to both of us. And that's the way you start a dialogue. And so in this book, I talk to Scientologists, I talk to Sikhs, I talk to Hindus, I talk to atheists and agnostics and uh, brokenhearted Catholics over the scandals in the Catholic Church and, and confused Baptists who still think that Jesus didn't drink wine, you know, that kind of thing. Right. But you find out that everybody's on their own unique journey because God made us all so uniquely. This cookie-cutter world people are trying to make as if that's going to be nirvana when we all believe the same way we all look the same way we all vote the same way it's i mean i don't want to live in a world like that i but want to grow know, i want to learn from people, which Joe. you have always done but you once told me when i had said to you when when did this start and you know because that isn't the usual for a youngster to be so touched by this early on. And you told yes. me that I think you were at a Billy Graham something. He had done a yes. film or and yes, that exactly you were right. a kid. You were what? I was 12. 12. And that I was 12 years old. it reached uh. you in a really powerful way. You know why, Joan? Because that's the way God reaches everybody. Uh, I was not a church-going girl. I still don't love organized religion. It, it, there's so much wrong with it. There's wonderful people that are involved in it, but it's it's like New York. There are wonderful people there, but the culture is is, is uh, malignant. You know what I mean? So uh, the church. I, listen, I was kicked out of, of uh, the Brownies when I was eight. I was kicked out of Sunday school when I was 12, kicked out of the America's Junior Miss Pageant when I was 17 because it was my life of crime, okay? <laughs> because I had a mind and I used it. When I was 12 years old, I um, was sitting in a movie theater watching this movie. Now, God met me at a movie theater. Why? Because all I ever wanted to be was an actress and a singer and a writer and a storyteller. And so God met me right there at the point of my interest and my need. Uh, there are so many people out there who would never watch a Billy Graham crusade on TV and come to know Jesus or go to church or, yeah, but, but, but I, I heard the name of Yeshua. I'm Jewish. And I heard the name of Yeshua say to me, Kathy, I love you. And if you trust me, I'll make something beautiful out of your life. And I couldn't have run down that aisle fast enough to, to, to accept his invitation. And Joan, it's the greatest decision I ever made in my whole life. Friends come and go. Trends come and go. Politics change. But the Bible in Hebrew says, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. I want to build myself, my life and myself, the work, my family, everything on that rock 
that foundation that will never change regardless of the storms of life. And you've known a lot of my storms. You've yeah. been with me through through most of them. Well, yeah. you've, and that's what people have. You know, they see you, Kathy. They see your success with Regis, with Hoda, with your songs. I, I saw your play. You, yeah, you did off-Broadway, you. Broadway. Kathy is really gifted, multi-talented. And you people can't imagine that you had aggravation, pain, heartache uh-huh. in your life. And you did. Right. And was it faith that got you through it? Was it friends? Every that, bit of it. Like, is well, that what held yeah. your hand? You know, it's, it's all you're talking about. Um, it was people like you that I would go on the air. And, and, and you, you were my friend in the sense that you believed me. You you knew I I had nothing to do with sweatshops. You knew that I hadn't that caused. Was, well, Frank, now yeah. wait. I want All you just to stuff. explain because a lot of people don't remember. I remember that distinctly. Oh, that yes, Kathy I was accused doing yeah. great. Had her own line of clothing. Was doing everything, and out of the blue, someone comes and says, "Hey." Forget about all the stuff she's talking about. She has children, sweatshops, the whole thing. And yeah. you yeah. didn't cave. You didn't cave in at no. all. No, he stood up in Congress and accused me of that. And I, we were one month away from opening up Cassidy's place in New York City during the pandemic, the, the AIDS and the crack pandemic. $14 million, Frank, and I mm-hmm. built to build a, uh, a home for the children. That's still going in New York City. Right. Uh, on, and... Uh, and, and all these years later, and you know, I, it obviously was not true, but it, it was a, a so-called civil rights advocate uh, or crusader, you know, the, trying to save people from sweatshop. No, the man worked for Unite, the uh, garment union, right. and they were trying to, to unionize Walmart. You. And so that, yes. So anyway, you're right. I stood up to it, to bullies. When I discovered that there really were sweatshops out there, even though the, I had none, I said, OK, then Lord, use me. Use this awful, awful desert season in my life to bring bring streams of water to people, and we got laws changed. We, you know, we passed a, a, a law in, up in Albany called the Hot Goods Bill. I mean, that's the story of my life: how God takes the the ashes of things, and but, he and he makes beauty out of it if well, we let him. You, I was going to say, you welcomed him, and I remember when. Um, you were married to Frank Gifford, a hero in this country, a yes, hero to yes. you and the children. And when you found out that he had fallen off the path um, yes. for a short but while. I, and I remember you saying to me when you found out that Frank was involved for not really involved, but whatever. No, he, had, he was unfaithful. He, had a, he, he had was a, unfaithful. Yeah, but, and you said, this is almost killing me. Yeah, I almost, I almost... Uh, that almost destroyed me. Uh, you know, he, the year before we battled the sweatshops together and he was my hero. Oh my gosh, he was. And a year later, uh, it's discovered that the tabloids had set him up uh, with a woman at the Regency Hotel. Pictures, you know, the whole thing, recordings, and it was, a nightmare. you know, uh, he, was, he was my best friend. And uh, you know what? I, I was able to forgive him immediately because oh, God wow. showed me in that first incident. Everything that I God has ever forgiven me for, and and there are some doozies, went right in front of my like a screen, like a scrawling on a screen in front of my eyes, and God, and the Lord said, Kathy, you must forgive as I have forgiven you, and I said yes, Lord, and I forgave him. Now, did I it took a long time to to get back to normal? We had a lot of work to do, and it, I've got scars from it still. 
you know i i'll never forget that that betrayal it it, it leaves uh emotional uh scars maybe not physical but they're there but we were able to save our family our marriage by the by the grace of god but you said how did i get through on my knees i remember i went to a, a gentleman uh, in new york who had been our premarital counselor and he said kathy if you can't forgive your your uh, your husband because I was having trouble forgiving Frank for his behavior afterwards because I forgave him so quickly, Joan. He thought it hadn't hurt me. Right. And he I said, are you crazy? It might, he thought we're back to normal. So I was having trouble with that. And this man said to me, if you can't forgive your husband, forgive your children's father. It was so genius. That's, yeah, that was a really because, good, important thing to say. Yeah, it got my eyes off me. And also, um, Cardinal O'Connell said to me, Kathy, you just remember this because he was very loving during the sweatshop situation to me. Very loving. Now, I hadn't heard a kind word from anybody until he's, he saw me privately and just put his arms out to me and just said, Kathy. And I've gotten his arms and he said, Kathy, remember this. Our Lord did not change this world so much through his miracles as he did through his suffering. And if you will suffer this injustice being done to you, for his namesake, great, great, great good will come from it. Again, it's always we have to get our eyes off us. So that's how I've gotten through. I've got dear friends, but they also are like-minded in my faith. My friends are not just going to say, I, "I'm thinking of you." I'm sending, I'm sending good thoughts. Right, you know, uh-uh. they are on their knees before God Almighty, praying for me. They're my prayer warriors. So you know, it's a whole community of faith-believing people that don't necessarily go to a building on a, a once for an hour, once a week, right, to and talk alike, or synagogue, or anything. It's uh, The word church in, in Greek is um, ekklesia, and it means a movement. It's a, a movement, a gathering of, the, of people moving in the Holy Spirit. It, there were no, in the first century A.D., the, the, the first believers in, in Jesus were called the way, followers of the way. Well, they were being persecuted. They were, they were hiding. They were meeting in each other's homes. There was no church. There was no building to go to. So, you know, aren't very, um, we aren't very, um, I'm sorry, I'm getting another call. Forgive me. Okay. We aren't very, what's the word? Um, we, there's a lot of biblical illiteracy. A lot of it in, in our culture. And that's why I write so many books about it, Joan, because you know me, I, got, I, go to, I go to Israel and I study rabbinically. And a lot of the stories in this new book, The Jesus I Know, are, are people that I took on these rabbinical trips to Israel. You even have what a rabbi. Well, he co-wrote the Rock the Road and the rabbi right. with me. Yeah, he's a brilliant, brilliant teacher. But my, you know, one for your vis- your listeners would probably be an interesting one. My friend David Pomerantz, whom I've written so many songs with, and all the Broadway stuff that I've done, he's part of my team with all of that. He's a Jewish guy, grew up a Jew, will always be a Jew, but took on Scientology 47 years ago. Married a Catholic girl who took on Scientology. And then they adopted a son as a baby and raised him in Scientology. And I love these people. I So I invited them to Israel with me. We had an amazing 10 days there. And uh, I just watched how, how hearing the word of God 
in the places where these stories actually took place and studying the word of God rabbinically, how it transformed them. Their son, their 14-year-old son at that time, was the first one to jump into the Jordan River and get baptized. Mm. So it's stories like that. But if I hadn't loved those people from the beginning and created a bond of trust and friendship between them, they wouldn't have gone on that trip with me. You have to start with loving people first. And that's what you know, you've then, always done. I've tried, honey. I'm you not perfect have. by any means. No, no, no. My kids haven't written their books yet. No, <laughs> listen, we're all waiting for our kids. So I used to say to my kids, hey, you know what? You'll go to your own shrink when you get to a certain age. You'll tell him or her anything you want to tell them. But meanwhile, cool it. Because we don't yeah, want you to know. know I, I always say to my kids, if you want to get everything in my will, don't you dare write a book until I'm dead. I won't give a rip. <laughs> that, that sure I may laugh. But Kathy Lee Gifford, who has left the city of New York to move to Nashville, which is actually for Kathy, who music is part of her soul, this is a city that has a wonderful sound all the time. Yes. And she's thriving yes. there. And did I read that you have a new man in your life, or was that gossip? No, well, it's not the one they keep talking about. That was three years ago. I had like three <laughs> days with him. No, it's not. <laughs> uh, yeah, I met a, a sweetheart of a man. He's brilliant. He's, uh, we're, you know, this season of my life. You know, you want something different. Uh, I, when I married Frank, I was 33 years old, and he was the right man for me, and I loved him dearly. And now this new person that God brought into my life, he, in fact, I hear him come through the door, is um, just, you know, it's just fun. Nashville's fun. Our work is fun. Uh, my life is good and fun, and I'm grateful. Is, Forever he, in grateful. Your, is he in the music world? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. That's all I'm saying, Missy. Okay. You're not getting anything out of me. Okay. But we're getting Love out you. of you that you're happy. And that I'm happy. Yes. Thank you so much, you darling. You love living there. And, all right, uh, Kathy. Uh, hey, you. You have a beautiful holiday season. and I, I look forward to talking to you in the you new year. You too, honey. And love to everyone, you, and we'll talk soon. Happy Christmas. That's Kathy Lee Gifford. <laughs> I'm Joan Hamburg. And Kathy is thriving. So we'll hear more from her. Take care. We'll talk again. I'm Joan Hamburg, and you're listening to WABC. Taking you behind the curtain, it's the Joan Hamburg Show. Talk Radio 77 WABC. We've all been a little down, no matter who we are. Everyone's got some kind of issue. This pandemic is lasting so long. And then my daughter and I took ourselves to see Mrs. Doubtfire, the new musical comedy at the Sondheim Theater. And I have to tell you, we laughed. And we mm. laughed. And we had such a good time. It was such a relief. And then my producer went to see it last minute. And she works all day from early in the morning, like everyone here. Hmm. And, you know, got out late, had to go home, and had such a good time. It made her so happy. It was just hmm. letting yourself sit there. And Rob McClure, who is the lead, one of the leads, and you've seen him 
in so many major shows in um, Beetlejuice and Something Rotten and more and more. You were so... I have Rob with me as a guest today. And Rob McClure, you were so good in this show. You're so good in all the shows, but it was mm. unbelievable to watch you move like you did. And are you having fun? Oh, my gosh. First of all, thank you so much. I'm so thrilled that it was able to be a, a tonic for you as it is being found to be for many. Um, but thanks, Joan. Yeah, I'm having the time of my life. It's um, It's been a long time coming. You know, we, we got... We were lucky enough to do three previews um, 19 months ago in March of 2020, and uh, and then COVID hit, and we had to put the show on a shelf for 19 months, and it's so refreshing to be back. And, you know, 19 months ago, we set out to, to make a show about the lengths to which you'd go to be with those you love, and we're finding that that message is resonating more now than ever in a way that people kind of couldn't imagine when we set out. Right, because um, the character that Rob plays is a married guy, an mm -hmm. actor, of course, like many actors, a struggling actor. Yes, And yes. he, like, lives out his acting fantasies by being <laughs> a million things to his kids who are perfectly yeah. enchanted by dad. Your mm. wife in the play is disenchanted. She's had enough. So you, she decides she needs a divorce, you have to leave, and I'm not going to tell the whole story, but mm -hmm. you ended up in disguise as a woman applying for a nanny job so that mm -hmm. you can be with your kids. Yeah. And I don't think, should we tell a little more than that, or... Or that's I, I, I think uh, I, that was uh, that was pretty darn good. <laughs> well done. Yeah, I mean, this is about a dad who will do anything to be with his kids, and and yeah, the the musical, um, you know, focuses on uh, you know uh, that he's not you know he might be a good friend and buddy to his kids, but he's not necessarily the best husband material at the beginning of the right. play, and and over the course of this sort of crazy charade. Um, uh, they all learn a whole lot about what it means to be a good parent um, and a good partner. And, um, you know, when the when the film came out in 93 and now the musical, um, it was one of the few stories for children that didn't uh, establish that the happy ending has to be the parents getting back together. Because right. right? up until then, that was sort of the only thing around, you know, parent trap and things like that, where the kids conspired to get mom and dad to fall back in love. And Mrs. Doubtfire was kind of the first thing to come along and say, you know what, maybe you're all going to be better for for um, for the parents being divorced. And then we, and then rather than finding ways to make them stay together, maybe it's better to redefine family. Mm -hmm. And uh, and that's what I think the musical has taken and expanded really beautifully. Right. And you know, the night I was there, there was a family across the aisle with six kids, including mm. a three-year-old. You know, oh, I thought wow. that was pretty surprising. Yeah, but oh yeah. At intermission, I went up to them and I said, I'm just curious. Tell me, kids, what do you think? And the kids had such a good time. You know, oh. they loved all the pratfalls and all the sight yes, gags. Yeah. I mean, and the truth is, that's what we love, too. We were in the mood for that. Yeah, and yeah. This is, to me, this is the right time. I'm talking to Rob McClure, who's starring in, he is Mrs. Doubtfire, among hmm. other things, in this play. So, 
you've had an interesting career, a little bit different from a lot of actors because you started in your high school where mm -hmm. you had near you the Paper Mill Playhouse, one of our favorite theater sources, yeah. and that really changed your life. For sure. I, I will often say that Paper Mill Playhouse changed my life, and they did. Uh, their education director, a woman named Susan Spidell, uh, created a program along with somebody named Mickey McNanny Damien, a brilliant, brilliant teacher and educator who we, we lost just a few years ago. But her and Susie Spidell created something called the Rising Star Awards, which is basically like the, the, the New Jersey High School Tony Awards. And they scooped me up my senior year of high school, and I won that award, which got me a scholarship to their summer teaching conservatory, which was sort of my first formal training in performance and uh, changed my life. And um, it was a production there of a play called I'm Not Rappaport with Judd Hirsch and Ben Vereen that I was lucky enough to be a part of that then transferred to Broadway and gave me my Broadway debut in 2002. That was unbelievable because you weren't yeah. living the New York life as a starving actor, you know, working as a waiter. No, no, I was I was a teaching artist directing, you know, the, the musical you were at, your at my high, school. high school. And <laughs> yeah, and um, and I was actually, uh, you know, they I uh, I was they cast me in the ensemble of Carousel. That was my first professional show in Paper Mill in 2000. Mm. And um, and it changed my life. I got to share a dressing room with the late, great Eddie Bracken, who mm. taught me more about this industry than anybody I could possibly wow. imagine. And did you get an equity card with all that? I did. Yes, I did. Mm -hmm. That was the beginning. And um, I, I just, I cherished it. You know, I was actually working in the box office after Carousel. I didn't want to leave the building. So I got a job in their box office. And when I'm Not Rappaport came along, they asked me to understudy. And I said, well, mm. you know, it's a non, at the time it was non-union. I got my union card when I was and I'm not Rappaport. And I said, well, the non-union understudy salary, I'm making more working in the box office. Can right. I keep my box office job <laughs> and I'll understudy from the box office? If you need me to go on, say, call it. my phone extension, I'll come back and go on. And they let That's me. <laughs> so I was understudying from the box office. And then we got word that that show was transferring to Broadway and they, they let there me out of the are. box office, thankfully. <laughs> and there I was. Unbelievable. And then you were yeah. in um, Avenue Q. Yes, yeah, for years, both on Broadway and on tour, changed my life. That was, uh, and that was the first time I was able to collaborate with Kevin McCullum, the great producer, who right. then I got to work with in Something Rotten and now Mrs. Doubtfire. Right, and you did Chaplin. I mean, it, it's amazing because, you know, a lot of people, I'm sure, said to you, why do you want to uh, work at the high school and teach directing or teach the kids? Why don't you just plow into the New York theater scene? But yeah. you resisted, and it was the best thing that could have happened. Absolutely. I wasn't ready. You know, I, I, I don't think I was good enough. I think I enjoyed it, and I had fun. But I think the experience of directing the musical at my old high school for four years made me such a better actor because it made me a better collaborator. I got a larger sense of what it takes to put on a show. You know, when the, show, when the school gives you a 1000 bucks to put on a musical with 35 kids, and you're trying to get performances out of these kids, you're, it forces you to sort of question your own process in, in an ability to try and explain to them what it is you want to get out of them. And it made me better, you know, hanging upside down from the ceiling of my high school auditorium, trying to wire a moving light into an antiquated electrical grid from the 1930s. Oh, my gosh. You, you, you learn a lot, exactly. you know, and um, it makes you a better actor because you have a sense of the larger picture. So now when I work on Broadway and I 
I can name, you know, what what foot lighting instrument we're using while Phil Rosenberg is, is uh, doing our, our lights. Uh-huh. Uh, you, you become a better collaborator. It, which is true. How did you guys deal with the pandemic? Like every act of the pain of seeing, yeah. you know, your another opportunity, a big one on Broadway is yeah. suddenly brought to its knees. Yeah, I mean, I, we... We were all hit with a with a large dose of perspective, right? We were certainly not the only ones struggling, and no, uh, and and, and uh, but we we um, you know it, it was it was all about scraping by. But you know, theater people are scrappy. You know, we sign up for an unpredictable life. But my gosh, we didn't couldn't have expected this. But we were um, we were lucky in that a lot of us turned to you know other forms of work a lot of things you know the invention of zoom certainly helped us out a lot of us could do sort of zoom readings or zoom teaching or things like that and um and uh but you know as as grateful as i am for those innovations and for all of the art that was able to be created online and digitally and otherwise um it is not theater it will never be theater because as you experienced this week when you came to the show, there's something about the shared humanity of being in the room together, that exchange of live energy, which is the reason we all go and participate and work in the theater is that electricity, that energy exchange. Right. Um, and, you know, laughter, a room full of laughter is, is quite literally a, a healing. It really is an amazing thing. And um, we're feeling it now more than ever. Right. And physically, though, Mrs. Doubtfire is not an easy show on you. No. I mean, no. it's, you the know, you have done. to be an acrobat to really. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, was yeah. this something you were always good at? You know, I was always uh, I always loved, uh, you know, sports and I, I played baseball and basketball in high school. I don't know that I was particularly good at it, but my my athleticism lent itself to to playing pretend. I was always playful. You know, I was always running uh-huh. around with my friends and playing Ghostbusters and Ninja Turtles and, right. and running around. And imitating. So I a, yeah, I was always a bit of a clown. You know, the first performance I ever did in my life was impressions in my fourth grade talent show. So I've always been a mimic, um, but I, I never knew that, that <laughs> 30, 30 years later was. I'd be cashing in on those, uh, those investments in that skill. Um, but, uh, yeah, who could have predicted? Huh? And one of the people I used to mimic as a child was, of course, Robin Williams right. um, because he was the, the mimic of all mimics, you know. Um, so between between having his influence and then getting to play Charlie Chaplin really prepared That's me for this thing. role. Yeah, because when you study physical comedy and physical storytelling in the way that that show forced me to, it changes your DNA as a performer and really prepared me for this sort of physical storytelling when you're inhabiting more than one self on the stage. Right, and so different from when you're doing cabaret and things like that. I know you've been at Feinstein's and you do this, which is very rewarding and much more intimate, but... Totally yeah. different experience. Totally different. Theater. A totally different set of skills. Yeah, it's a, it takes a different uh, different muscle group, you know. And uh, and and Mrs. Doubtfire specifically, just getting the the you know the the physical ability to maneuver that costume, you know, to maneuver those prosthetics yeah, that so I'm wearing hard. on my face and the and the bodysuit. So to be able to to you know. I likened Chaplin to learning how to speak fluently a physical vocabulary, an unspoken vocabulary. And Mrs. Delphire certainly has her own set of physical 
behaviors and things that, that, uh, you know, getting all of those pieces on is not only an obstacle, but then it starts to feel like an, an assist. It starts to feel like part of her being. Um, so I, I love costumes because they tend to sort of be the last ingredient in finding out exactly how that person moves. Right. And they certainly did a great job. And because that's a major deal from the hair oh, and everything on. Yeah, we, we, we partnered um, with this amazing prosthetic company, and we had to do a lot of trial and error because, you know, and, and that's one of the things that makes the show really thrilling is that in the movie, when Robin Williams runs in the other room and comes back as Mrs. Doubtfire 18 seconds later, we all subconsciously know that they yelled cut and he went in a trailer for five hours. Exactly. If, in the show, if I've got 18 seconds, I've got 18 seconds, and the audience knows I've got 18 seconds, so the stakes feel very high. Um, and the fact that the this team and my team of dressers and the hair and makeup people have pulled this off in real time is a, a pretty extraordinary achievement. No, it is, and the audience loves it. And yeah, they, yeah. And it, and it does happen in those few seconds. So when you're immersed in a role like this, you don't start looking at other things, at TV or anything else. This is no. It. This, is, this is, I don't have any extra brain cells. I have the show, and I've got a three-year-old at home, so my right. brain is. <laughs> and you don't live in Manhattan, right? You don't. You don't have well, to tell where you live, but you're commuting. Yeah, well, we I, I uh, we have a house in Philadelphia where we're usually uh, based full time. Um, we are up here at least until I get my feet underneath me. For, <laughs> for the, no, it's too so hard. I don't have to lose that. Yeah, too yeah, hard yeah. So to we go commute. we go home we go home on the days off. But uh, I actually really enjoy that commute when I'm not stretched so thin. Right. No, now it's yeah. too hard. And you're married to an actress. Yes. Yeah, Maggie Lakis, who uh, who we met doing a production of Grease. We were duty and Frenchie in Grease in 2005, mm. and uh, have been together ever since. It's great. And you're. Do you have time to enjoy your baby? Or it... yeah, yeah. It's you know, it's so funny. The the um, <laughs> you know, Daniel Hillard and Mrs. Doubtfire is sort of this crazy man child, a bit of a Peter Pan. You right. know, who won't grow up. And uh, I found myself at rehearsal, you know, playing with my my stage kids and, 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 you know, improvising all kinds of fun games and some of them ended up in the show, some of them didn't. And, and then I would get home absolutely exhausted and I would open the door and then my real three-year-old would go, dad, let's play pirate. And what am I going to say? <laughs> no to my real child, but yes to my fake children. So I found myself, you know, pretending oh, no. to 21 outer hours out of the day. <laughs> oh no. Did she ever see her daddy as Mrs. Doubtfire? Not yet. I not yet. You know, it may I, be um, too much. Once, well, once the COVID protocols light lighten up at the theater, and I can bring her in and show her the mask and show her the hair, and she right. has the concept of the pretend. I would love to to sort of show her the make believe of it all. But until I can get her in there, and so that she can see exactly what it is and how it works, right? Or get her vaccinated. She's too young yes, right now. She's too young right now. Exactly right. Yeah. So it's a hard thing. And what I'm fascinated by too is the line for all these people going to theater despite COVID and despite yeah. everything, even though the theaters, God bless them, are strict and doing a very good job on this. Yes, they are. And, you know, it's it's a fascinating thing. You know, my our producer says um, this is an art of inconvenience. For the last 19 months, we've tried to find ways to bring art into your room, into your bedroom, you know, into your living room, uh -huh. into your laptop, on your iPad, even your phone. But now we're asking you 
to get a babysitter. We're asking you to spend the money. Right. We're asking Talk you to get tested. Car. We're asking you to get vaccinated. We're asking you to come in. We're asking you to wear a mask. So the people who are making the effort to show up, we know really want to be there. And so do we. And it, it's just proof as to how much people need it that there that this isn't it's it is inconvenient but we promise that for the people who make the effort the reward is pretty monumental and we're and it's a it's a mutual investment of us putting in the work and showing up and putting on these shows right. and the people putting in the work to make themselves available and to come see exactly. it and we couldn't appreciate it more no and you guys really went through like so many actors you had just started the new mrs doubtfire That's i right. think what three Three shows Three. when Broadway Three shut previews. down? Yeah, I'll never forget it. We were I was on stage rehearsing with Jen Gambatis and Jerry Zachs. And uh, our producer came in and sat everybody down and said, hey, leave everything right where it is and go home. They must have and, been uh, crying. It's, it was a death oh, in was, the family. Yeah, yeah. And then, we, you know, and then we all go home for these 19 months. And what's astonishing is when we were finally let back in the theater, all of these Broadway theaters became these little time capsules of 5.30 on Thursday, March 12th, you know, um, with, you know, the notes I was receiving from Jerry that afternoon written sitting on my desk next to, uh, you know, a couple pairs of spring shorts that I had bought for my daughter that she'll never wear because she's already outgrown them. <laughs> yeah, uh, but, uh, you know, it's, it's these little time capsules. It was a really strange and bizarre thing, but we're so grateful that our producer held on and, uh, right. and and found a way to let us come back. Right, and let the audience enjoy it. Thank yeah. you so much, Rob. We loved your performance. Rob McClure. Thank you, Joan. Starring in Mrs. Doubtfire, the new musical comedy at the Sondheim Theater. Go see Rob and the cast. It will cheer you up, make you laugh, and we all need that. I look forward to talking to you again. I'm Joan Hamburg, and you're listening to WABC. The First Lady of New York Radio. This is Ask Joan. Every year at this time, we get help. What can we do on New Year's Eve? People want to know whether they're alone, whether they're with families, whether they're with a partner. I'm going to give you the easiest thing because with the virus still running rampant and spreading, you might want to think of something outside. And what my family has done for years is come to Central Park and get involved in the New Year's Eve midnight run. Fireworks, you can dance, you can even put on a costume. Every age can do it. You don't want to run? Walk. It's perfectly okay. You've got to come with a family member or a friend. Just have a good time. There is music and dancing leading up to the race. It kicks off at 11.59. It's a four-mile race. There's a fireworks show lighting up the sky. 4,000 runners in past years. Spectators in costume. And here's what you do. I promise you it's fun. You can't do four miles, do a half a mile. Walk. Be part of something. And runners, walkers, can sign up at New York Roadrunners website, nyrr.org. Okay, so you may not want to go into the park and run, although I promise you it's a lot of fun. 
but a um, PR friend of ours who handles a lot of places in the Times Square area and represents a lot of small businesses had a couple of thoughts. Bond 45, you know that restaurant, guys? 221 West 46th Street. They're doing a great big New Year celebration. They're doing entertainment, a five-course feast, an open bar, and a private escort to view the live ball drop in Times Square. Used to be in the historic Bond clothing store, and it's an Italian kitchen, and I like the family, I like the food, and Tony DiNapoli, a big family restaurant, but you know what? It's good. When our family comes in from Latin America, that's where we take them. They love it. 147 West 43rd Street. There's also a branch on the east side. And then they told us about a place I didn't know called Hold Fast on West 46th Street. Food, cocktails, you know, all kinds of good things. And Jasmine's Caribbean Cuisine at 371 West 46th Street, it's on Restaurant Row, and it's you think that you're in the Caribbean, Dominica, Antigua, St. Thomas, Trinidad, generational recipes. So we like that. Anyway, there's a lot of good things, and it's all relatively in that neighborhood. You know, truthfully, I could never imagine going to Times Square, waiting all those hours, standing there. People love it. And if you don't want to be in a big crush, think about one of these possibilities. All right, guys, we're coming up to news, weather, you name it. It's all here on WABC, and we do this every Sunday starting at 2 o'clock. So if you've just joined on listening, happy holidays. We wish all the best for you and yours. Happy New Year, everyone. Let's hope it's a better, brighter, bigger, healthier future. I'm Joan Hamburg for WABC.